Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. No, you can't go. You can't go. You just... Please just sit on the couch. Just... I did get the new Vanity Fair. You can read it. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Chris Murphy. We're here to discuss the third episode of the HBO series The White Lotus, Bull Elephants. This episode, we've got a lot of characters getting up to no good in various pools, a Godfather tour, and the arrival of an honest-to-God fortune teller. And we'll also hear Chris's talk with Michael Imperioli, the television veteran whose character Dominic seems to be heading towards some positive steps, maybe, <laughs> uh, even if he seems really miserable about it. I think sexual politics and sexual dynamics between, you know, men and women and masculine and feminine, it's an ancient thing, which I think why Sicily makes it kind of the perfect backdrop for it. There is also the ongoing and all-important question of who winds up dead at the end of the show. Each week at the end of the episode, Richard and I are going to debate who we think is dead. And we're going to fold in your theories that you sent to us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. And to keep ourselves kind of accountable and raise the stakes a little bit, whoever predicts right, you or me, Chris, uh, wins an Aperol Spritz. Yes, even though you don't like them. So if I win, I get an Aperol Spritz and you have to drink one. So, Chris, this episode is where things start to go wrong. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I well, I was going to say, this is the episode where things start to pop off. Yeah, it gets a little more exciting. It gets a little sexy. It gets a little... More mysterious. Yes, a little yeah. dangerous, too. Yes, yeah, for sure. And I think that this is also the episode where Megan Fahey's already wonderful performance really kicks into you gear. So let's start with Daphne. fully read my mind. She is the... Not that episodes need to have an MVP, but she blew me out of the water this episode. Um, specifically with her sort of girl strip slash kidnapping <laughs> yeah, of Harper. Yeah. A total scam. Like she's like, I just on a whim rented this villa. Oh, but I thought to pack extra toothpaste and toothbrushes. I'm and always stuff. bringing extra toothpaste yeah. with me on day trips with my girlfriends. And so she and Harper are inextricably linked in this episode. Mm. Um, and that starts because Harper is determined that she's going to be fun now and friendly now. She's going to change. Yeah. And she has this very uh, scuttled attempt at morning sex <laughs> with Ethan. And and it doesn't go well because she's like, but you're supposed to be horny after you run. And he's like, 
there's clearly something more happening there, but she still sticks to her plan yeah. to be nice. She shows up to breakfast, all sunny, look at the beautiful weather. She's wearing a headband. She's wearing a headband. It's her new Italian look, you know. How and, nice is the sky? Just things that we're not used to seeing Harper <laughs> engage with. And I think that Aubrey Plaza is really good at playing that falseness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's believable enough. But And I do believe that she's actually trying to yeah. change. I do believe that she's trying to be this fresh, sunny, easy breezy Harper that might not really exist. <laughs> it, it sadly might not. I mean, she's just too aware of all the pains and ills of the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think that I don't know. Maybe, I'm curious to hear what you think. But I think Daphne smells that out instantly. Oh, she... and, but she's kind of into it. She's like, oh, let's play this game. Yeah. <laughs> well, Daphne, if we learn anything from this episode, Daphne loves games. Uh-huh. Yeah. Daphne loves to play. And I think she uh, to go back to sort of whether Daphne's as simple as we might have thought mm-hmm. she was from episode one with, you know, I don't vote. I love Ted Lasso. If anything, we know that she's much more complicated and a much more discerning character and a much more discerning judge of character then we might have given her credit for at the beginning of the season. And I think she 100% can sniff out Harper's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Harper's bullshitting her. And I think that just as Harper, you know, in an earlier episode was being like, there's got to be something wrong with their marriage. She's trying to investigate it. I think Daphne's investigating Harper's relationship, too, because she's like, how do you guys tick? Like, (laughs) I know what deal I have with my shitty husband, Cameron. (laughs) But like, say that we kind of enjoy this shittiness a little bit, you know, like it's, it, she said last week, it's funny when he loses his temper, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think and I think she knows that there is something at root wrong in the other marriage. Uh, and she's just trying to sniff that out. And it, which involves kidnapping. Yes. which uh, Yes. And feeding her drugs. <laughs> right. right <laughs> and exactly. edible and kidnapping. But yeah, I I think the thing with Daphne and Cameron is that they play games with each other. But I it's easy to forget that games are often fun. And she even says it. She says, you know, he goes off and does his things and I do what I want. Mm -hmm. That's the thing about Daphne. She is not to jump to the, her last sort of really fantastic and emotionally moving scene with Harper. She's not a victim. She does what she wants. She will rent the villa in Noto, whether or not Cameron wants her to. And she She's as much in this marriage. She's she's sort of as equal in a way. And I think that my kind of hunch about where this to the set, this set of couples is headed in the kind of grander thematic reach of the season is I kind of think that it's going to kind of get to a point where you're like, oh, Cameron and Daphne's marriage is better than Harper and Ethan's well, because it's, a, it's honest. <laughs> there is something about it that. You can't say it doesn't work. It's honest about being dishonest. Yes. It's yeah. honest and it's dishonesty. And it is working for them, you know, maybe not all the time, but they seem to be at least somewhat on the same page, right? right. And we get to Harper and uh, Ethan. If we look at the end of the episode, Harper says, oh, Ethan never lies to me. Like Ethan, Ethan mm-hmm. would never lie to me. Who knows what's to come, but what Cameron and Ethan are up to, I would, I don't, <laughs> I would be shocked if, yeah. if, Ethan says, hey, Harper, by the way, uh, Cameron fucked a prostitute on her couch yeah, while sorry. you were gone. Yeah. Sorry about that. That's why I missed your call. I, I kissed someone and I was on drugs and whatever. And I wasn't, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I think that in that and because and Ethan says it, too. I don't lie to my wife. And like, that's a nice sentiment in a kind of vacuum. It's beautiful. But it's so rigid that the, it makes it 
easily, you know, it makes the relationship that much easier to break. And false. And also, like, some lies help a relationship. (laughs) Some lies are really important. Some lies do help. I'm curious to know what you think about uh, Daphne's episode titled sort of speech about men, bull elephant, right? And how men, it's so sad to be a man and how they just go off alone. Cameron and I went on a safari. And um, on safari, you see all these pods of elephants and they're all like bathing in the river and playing with each other. And it's so sweet, but it's just the moms and the babies. Because when the boy elephants get too big, they kick them out of the pod. And then the bull elephant has to like wander through the jungle by himself for the rest of his life. sorry for men you know it's like they think they're out there doing something really important but really they're just wandering alone and then we cut directly to ethan and cameron having the time of their lives on jet skis sort of not a care in the world what did you make of that sort of juxtaposition yeah that 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 speech is so good and i think what i love about the white lotus as a whole and mike white's writing as as a whole is that he it's it's ambivalent. It's like characters say things that are kind of true and kind of not, kind of sad, kind of not. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good example of that, where Daphne is, that is her perspective on things. Those are the men she knows. I mean, she says to Harper, uh, his other coworkers are like this demonic triumvirate. <laughs> like the, and so she- Psychotic triumph. She spends a lot of time with a specific kind of man. And so when you th- see what she says about elephants through that lens, you're like, okay, Good on her for trying to have some compassion for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Mike White is in juxtaposing that sentiment with like Ethan and Cameron having a blast together. Um, if that's like supposed to be disproving her or sort of somehow proving her right. It's like mm-hmm. they think they're having these fun things, but all they're doing is competing with each other. All they're doing is one upping each other. And so they are. And they are alone isolated on their jet skis. in that experience. Yes, they're yeah. completely isolated yeah. in that experience. I just think it's so. Uh, I love what you said about Mike White's writing, and to have that sort of depiction of men, right? Of his thoughts about men, or Daphne's thought of, thoughts about men, right after we see Harper's sort of dream sequence, yeah. walking through Italy, what it feels like to be Harper, right? We see her surrounded by all of these men, just staring her down, eating her up uh, with their eyes. Um, And you can feel how uncomfortable and how that might be how certain women and many women probably feel walking through life all the time. Um, Not a woman to be found in that sequence. I thought it was such a, you know, such a nice little like lyrical moment to illustrate how Harper feels about being a woman. Because it's both exciting and scary you know it's creepy it's a little bit horror movie but it's also it's like that um that movie Milena with monica bellucci where she sits Mm. down and then all the men come to light her cigarette and you know it felt like maybe a reference to that um or probably some older classic italian (laughs) film that i'm not aware of but uh, um but yeah it's also interesting from a kind of style point that like this show doesn't go into that many like reveries like this no that and was there's very... a couple other things we'll get to in the, or one at least big one mystical element to this episode that you're like what's what's going on here there's something sort of simmering i think it might have something to do with like the the, the ancient italy of it all you know mm. i'm thinking about like harper and uh daphne being in this villa that's beautiful but also you have to think about like but uh, so rich people used to live here and now you can just rent it for the weekend so that wealth goes away like yeah. all of this stuff that like Cameron works so Ruins. so deviously for like it eventually goes away maybe not for them or their kids or their grandkids but somewhere along the line 
it becomes something that just people stay in for the night, you know? Yeah. And so I think there is a sense of like, there's a kind of eerie creep around these people of like, like history's coming for them or time is coming for them. Um, it, it's so interesting what you said about sort of the ruins and how like this you know, Palazzo, like it used to, you know, house these rich families and now you can rent it out for a night. It's sort of very similar to, uh, or I see a parallel with that to the godfather of it all. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, you have to kind of wonder, like, are these people on to something in a way? I mean, I don't want to be that kind of person, but, like, they do seem to get ahead for a while anyway. Yeah, and I will say Theo James is so pretty and charming that he sort of made it seem like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he's he's well cast. (laughs) He's really well cast. And it sort of, to go back to that, it sort of made sense why Ethan sort of just went along with him for the ride of the party when he knew he knew it was getting out of hand and it sort of starts to get out of hand. You can feel him start to freak out internally at the very end of the episode. But Cameron, say what you will, he's a, he's a good time. <laughs> this is a seduction. It's a seduction. You know, he's trying to seduce Ethan into investing with him. And um, there's a that's an intricate process, it seems. But one that Cameron is well practiced at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess it ha- you have to question then, is Daphne in on that seduction? Is she trying to get Harper to her cause? I don't know that dragooning Harper into an overnight in a different <laughs> town is the good way to get to get to get to that particular person. Like but I it, think, but like it, it could work. Kind of works in that like Daphne gets some information. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know. I I'm, I apologize that I keep referencing Survivor, but Mike White would probably appreciate it <laughs> as a former Survivor for contestant. That. But I think he's kind of writing Daphne as one of these clever players who is underlooked in the early episodes because she doesn't do well in the challenges and she's just a pretty girl. And then like halfway through the season, you're like, whoa, Daphne has an incredible strategic game. And how does she know who everyone who has an idol, like community idol? Like, I just think that like Daphne is, I think, is sort of like one of Mike White's like platonic ideal survivor players. That is so that is blowing my brain right now. I'm not even a survivor head, but I'm like, oh, is she a Sandra? Like, is she like there's a little Sandra in there. But I'm yeah, like it's just it's it's funny the way that he is kind of writing the sort of social strategy of all these people, yes. you know, and some are better than others. I think you mentioned Godfather, so maybe we can that we can lead us over mm-hmm. to Albie and Portia and <sighs> Albie's terrible strategy. Oh, goodness. Like his heart's in the right place. He's at this Godfather lunch and <laughs> looking at the mannequin <laughs> and he says all this stuff, which again with Mike White, the trickiness of his writing, the ambivalence is like, the kid is right. Yeah. I think Gender in a lot of ways. is a social construct. But he's being annoying about it. And he's saying it in a way that's like, Portia has basically done everything she can except say it out loud. Like, I want you to be a little dangerous and a little bit of a pig because like, that's more fun. We're not going to get married. This is just a vacation tryst. So like, can it be, can you just be a little bit whatever? Yeah. And Albie is just not listening, which in some ways makes him yet another obstinate, lonely <laughs> man, you know? So in all his softness, he's actually kind of displaying some typical male stubbornness. Yes, but I uh, I will push back on that specifically with the Godfather scene because I do think while he becomes sort of the uh, voice of Gen Z in that moment, oh, the Godfather, is it really a great movie or does it just glamorize an entire way of life that is now gone where men could go out and be violent and kill people and sleep with whoever they want and come back to like a nice bowl of spaghetti at the end of the day mm-hmm. from their loving wife? I think that's an interesting point of view that is often not interrogated because people are like, oh, well, you know, The Godfather is such a great movie or The Sopranos is such a great, or, you know, these are such classics. They're part of the canon. Mm -hmm. So we often don't 
wrestle with, oh, the social implications of that. And is that movie so great because, and this is the central argument, because men are hardwired to want to do that and that's what men do? Or is it because movies like that and entertainment like that have socialized us to, or socialized men or people to engage in the world in that right. way? Is it nature or nurture? And I think White would say, it's both. Yeah. He would kind of shrug his shoulders and be like, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a little bit of, you know, and I think that you look at Albie and, and to some extent, um, I mean, not no, to a kind of big extent, Dominic is is at least giving lip service to the idea that he's trying to break his own cycle. Yeah. Albie is clearly trying to break a, a family, a generational cycle by being, you know, the sensitive, woke, you know, whatever guy. Um, but White you know, draws the limits of that or it, because is Albie doing it for the right reasons? Is he doing it organically, you know? Yeah. And look, Portia is just one woman that he's interested in um, who just doesn't seem to, you know, cotton to what he's saying. Maybe other women would, mm -hmm. but like, I think that it, I think that, yeah, that conversation in in tandem with um, the, the elephant's speech, it's like, you know, we're talking a lot about like the nature of men yes. and actually... Uh, Tanya, when she's having dinner with Portia, says something similar. You already meet a guy here? Kinda. Yeah, I did. He's really smart and everything and went to Stanford. You know, one of those guys. He's really nice. Like, maybe a little too nice, you know? I wish he just, like, got my heart rate up a little bit more or something. Portia. Don't spend your life chasing emotionally unavailable men. Oh, you'll spend your whole life just banging your head against the wall. Um, so that scene is fascinating to me because, like, is this the first time on the show? Well, I guess she, Tanya had some moments of, of clarity in the first season. But, like, this is the first moment I can distinctly remember where Tanya, it's like, oh, like, you're a human being who, like, actually has some insights into life. <laughs> You're someone whose uh, opinion should be valued. Yeah, yeah, I should listen to you right now. She's being kind, and we don't see that often, you know? The funny thing, though, is her kindness comes from a total selfish place of my relationship has just gone to shit. A, a fortune teller has just told me my husband is cheating on me. She's spiraling. So right. she's not even being kind on purpose. She's being kind because yeah. she's spiraling because of her own life. That's true. So we can't give her too much credit there, I would say. Tanya is not saying that to Portia purely out of, like, the care for another person. Mm -hmm. She's talking to herself. Yeah. And I guess, it, yeah, but also at the same time being like, don't go the route I went. That doesn't mean it's bad advice. Right. It's right. actually pretty good advice. And yet, I think now we gotta we gotta fling open the doors of Casa Amor, and we got yeah. we got a hunk just entered the villa. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, our we don't even know his name Mr. yet. Mr. Pool Man or something. Mr. I don't, Cold yeah. Nipples Pool Man. Yeah, in yeah. the red bathing suit, uh, straight off the sail of Island. Fully. He comes in, and honestly, and I want your take on this. I think if he was not in the pool that at that exact moment, and Portia had not seen him. Portia and Albie would have made out and they would have, you know, maybe gone back to her room and everything could have been happily right. ever after for them. But this random man is so goddamn hot. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And clearly, clearly hot in a 
asshole way, you know, an exact opposite way yeah. of Albie and exactly what Portia sort of has said that she wanted in a right. way. Here's an aggressive bull elephant mm. pushing the other one out of the out of the pack, you know, um, out of the herd. Um, and, you know, I I won't I don't imagine that this character is here by accident. I mean, <laughs> I, I will probably see some more of him as we probably will. um more of whoever this person that the actor Tom Hollander is playing mm. who keeps looking at uh, Tanya and she, I mean, I, I so relate to this. She thinks she's kind of being made fun of. She's like, <laughs> do something with my shirt. When I was in uh, college, I used to wait tables at this kind of diner slash Jewish deli place. And these teenage girls were all kind of tittering every time I walked over the table and I thought they were making fun of me. <laughs> and so I kind of snapped and I went Aww. up to them and I was like, that's really, really rude. And I had like tears in my eyes and they were like, um, what? We just thought you were cute. And I was like, oh, I'm so oh, sorry. My heart. Um, so I hope that, that Tanya is wrong about these men kind of toying with her um, because they seem genuinely interested, but to what end, we don't know. We don't know yet. But yeah, they haven't done anything. That is one of the most heartbreaking and cutest stories I've ever heard in my life. I must say that. It's the last time anyone called me cute, so <laughs> I savor it. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with Michael Imperioli and theories about who's dead. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. So, Chris, uh, one of our listeners, Jacqueline, wrote in to stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, which everyone should do. Absolutely, everyone. Theories, questions, <laughs> thoughts, complaints. Thank you, Jacqueline. Um, she has a theory that Portia might be secretly sleeping with Greg. What now? Yeah. Tanya's husband. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. is, that would really complicate things. And I guess we have no idea who he's on the phone with. Right. Not to be ageist or anything like that. Uh, Greg doesn't seem like the caveman that no. Portia is maybe lusting for or imagining on this Sicilian trip. But we, who's to say at this juncture? It might explain, like, Portia has that kind of scene at breakfast where she starts, she's just having another spiral, and she's like, I'm just so depressed at home, and, like, is everything boring? And, like, Ugh. maybe part of her sadness, anxiety, whatever, is related to an affair? I don't know. Um, it feels like that would be the least boring thing she could possibly do, though. Yeah, like, that's she's true. Like, that's she, true. She's lamenting that. And I think this is, a, again, another beautiful Mike White speech, is everything boring you go to some beautiful location in sicily and you take a photo that everyone else has taken a photo and you're just contributing to the content mill and you can't even get lost anymore because you have a google phone yeah, yeah. um and it feels like she's coming out of you know the malaise of the pandemic and wants to have something exciting and that feels a bridge too far of an exciting thing right. to have happened to her but I do think that's a very fun theory, yes. Jacqueline. But, you know, speaking of um, listener emails, and, and we were talking about the Italy of it all, the godfather fetishism of it all. Um, a listener who lives in Perugia, Hannah, um, she's American, but she lives in Italy. Uh, she she thinks that there's something about that Sicilian fantasy. And so she writes some... Um, mm. Bert's comment where he says we're Sicilian just like you cracked me up um, and maybe important to their visit to, the, to um, Bert's ancestral town. 
She says there are many uh, Americans of Sicilian heritage. I am one of them, by the way. Mm. Uh, and they love to bring it up when they want to feel less uh, white. <laughs> but the real Sicily is so different, so very different from the Godfather Resort fever dream that so many have. The culture is very, very different. She says, I'm not an expert by any means, but I know that most of the Americans who like to brag about the baked ziti their Nona makes would shit their pants if they had to navigate the piles of trash and potholed roads outside of Palermo, which is the biggest city in Sicily. Uh, My husband, who works for a Sicilian company and whose grandparents are all Sicilian, refuses to live there. Uh, I am anxiously awaiting what happens when grandpa encounters reality. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's something, you know, we've spent a lot of this episode and really the past two episodes talking. And thank you, uh, Hannah, from the, for the comment. I wish I lived in Perugia. That sounds nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we've talked a lot about the gender dynamics. This episode is heavy on that. But we, there are also the matters of class that, mm-hmm. that the White Lotus um, likes to be about. Uh, where did that kind of manifest itself most potently in this episode? Is it still Lucia and Mia or? Yeah, I I would say it's still Lucia and Mia and I would say towards the end of the episode when they're sort of, you know, up Schitt's Creek without a paddle after Dominic ends their relationship and you have to see them be resourceful and sort of figure out how to stay within the enclave of the White Lotus. Mm -hmm. That's one way that we see the class issues. But then also we walk with Valentina to work and we see her sitting outside feeding cats and getting hit on by a Sicilian man and we're sort of unraveling her story mm-hmm. as the hotel manager. So I'm curious to see. I don't think we're going to get that far out of the walls of the White Lotus. But if we were, is that going to be through Valentina and her yeah. own personal story? Something's happening with Valentina in this episode. I think she's got a little bit of a crush. Uh, I'm curious to see because, you know, by this point in the first season, we really knew Armand like like he was a major part of the show the the the, the hotel manager. So now his counterpart in Sicily, she hasn't really been that involved. Yeah, she hasn't yet. eaten anyone's ass yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> that we know of. That we've seen on camera. Yeah, yeah. Um so I'm kind of curious about that. And also there is the matter of Valentina having that disdain for Lucia and Mia who so where is that relationship going to go? Uh and also Lucia and Mia are still on Dominic's payroll whatever he on his dime they're at least registered as guests in his and his dad's rooms yeah so yeah i don't know and, and i i wonder if dominic's new sobriety if, if we want to call it that how if that's sustainable um which i don't know is that a good time to cut to your conversation yeah. with michael imperial i feel that's a great time just because i got the pleasure i had the pleasure of interviewing michael imperioli about his work as dominic this season and we really talked about whether men or whether anyone has the capacity to change, like whether that's even possible. Dominic says that he wants to change, but clearly he's dealing with sex compulsion and addiction and a lot of personal issues. And we chatted for a while about whether or not we can change, whether or not people can change. It was really enlightening and edifying. Well, let's hear that now. I am so excited to be chatting with Michael Imperioli, who stars on The White Lotus season two as Dominic, a Hollywood producer with, uh, I guess, some issues with impulse control, we might say. Um, thanks for thanks for joining me, Michael. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, we're going to dive into episode three, which sort of kicks off with a bang. Sort of we open with Dominic sort of, you know, reeling from his night before. You got Lucia in bed. You've got um, Mia on the couch. Um, 
And it seems to have a little bit of remorse, I guess, in that opening scene. I mean, what do you, what is sort of running through his brain, would you say, or what was running through your brain, you know, when we wake up that morning? You know, uh, when I discussed the character with Mike White, we were both on the same page in terms of this guy's dealing with compulsive behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, you could call it sex addiction. A lot of people do. And meaning that he's doing stuff that he knows is going to cause him regret, remorse, guilt. Um, and in the moment when he d makes these decisions to do it, you know, he's under the grips of this kind of spell that, you know, this is going to be amazing and this is going to be great. And, and very much like when someone who's struggling with drugs or alcohol feels like, you know, the drink's going to make everything good. And then mm -hmm. you wake up with a hangover the next day and you realize you did it again. And you didn't want to do it. So I think really he's, you know, for these very fleeting, quick moments of pleasure, he's <laughs> paying a gigantic price that he's, he realizes he doesn't want to do anymore, but he hasn't found, you know, the, the way to kind of overcome it. When did you get on board with White Lotus season two and sort of like discover that, you know, Dominic would be struggling with impulse control? Is it, how collaborative was that experience, I guess? Well, I got on board after everything was written. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it was January, you know, we went to Italy towards the end of February. So around the end of January, I was cast mm -hmm. and, you know, we had a couple of conversations and, and for Mike, it was really about that and as well as for me. That's what I felt. Um, yeah. Uh, he's not someone who's just uh, a cheat and a philanderer, although that is what he's doing in essence, but you know, yeah. it's compounded by you know, this compulsive thing that's driving him to do these negative behaviors, things that are very harmful to his life. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we spoke about addiction a lot because sex addiction is a tricky one, you know, like whereas mm -hmm. like alcohol, drugs, or gambling, right? They're all things that if you have an addiction to them, you shouldn't do it, period. Yeah, right? yeah it's sort of very clear, yeah. People, there's Overeaters Anonymous, which is like mm -hmm. deals with, addiction to certain types of food well we have to have food to eat so you yeah. got to figure out ways of eating healthy that's not going to put your health in danger sex addiction is the same thing ideally mm -hmm. you want to have sex integrated into your life as a healthy element that's not going to kind of cause problems absolutely uh, it's not just like well i'm not never going to have sex for the rest of my life so mm -hmm. it's a and it's accompanied by a the stigma because it's your sexuality and mm -hmm. um it's very private and b uh, the perception that you just want to have your cake and eat it too. You want to <laughs> yeah. be married and, and have sex with, you know, young women. It, yeah. So we have no that's, sympathy for you. Well, that's so interesting because that seems to be, you know, Tom Dominic's problem is that he wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. You know, he's, you know, he calls his wife on the phone in the first episode, right. And sort of, you know, wants her to come back. And it, it seems like his impulse control is sort of has fractured his relationship with his family potentially past the point of no return. Um, I don't know where, where do you think he stands with, you know, I mean, that scene was so wonderful with you on the phone with Laura Dern, if it turns out, which is so fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about that, uh, about that scene and where he stands with his wife? Um, you know, he kind of wants her understanding, but knows that he hasn't earned it. Mm -hmm. um, he hasn't found a way to get a handle on this. And there are ways. I mean, there are 12 step programs similar to yeah. like AA or Narcotics Anonymous and things like that. There's therapy. There's, you know, but you have to 
the key to overcoming an addiction or compulsive behavior stuff is number one, admitting that you have a problem. Yeah. That it's making your life unmanageable. Is he there yet? Do you think he's there yet? Um, I think that call with his wife might be the, the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. Being on this trip with his father and his son simultaneously sort of I, complicates things even more. And it's so wonderful. I mean, the conversations that, you know, you and F. Murray Abraham and Adam DeMarco as, uh, you know, as Bert, your grandfather, and then as Albie, your son have about how men operate in society. And a little bit for Dominic, I'm a little bit like, given Bert and his, you know, his sort of lecherous, <laughs> you know, attitude towards women, is it sort of learned behavior? Is it nature? Is it nurture for Dominic? Like, you know, how much, how responsible is he for the position that he's in, given his relationship with his father and his father? In general? I mean, I think it's both, you know, mm -hmm. nature and nurture, you know, it's learned behavior. As, so, but as far as stopping it, overcoming it, it's completely his responsibility. Mm, You're not going to mm -hmm. stop it by blaming it on your father. You totally. have to accept that, you know what? When I was a kid, I was exposed to certain things. Certain things were normalized. And maybe that kind of contributed to me going that direction. But blaming my dad ain't going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. you, know? Um, you know, he's got to learn to take responsibility and just say, you know, I think also his success is a white lotus you know, a lot yeah. of it's about rich people. His yes. success yes. and his wealth, I think, uh, allowed him to kind of justify mm -hmm. certain things. And like, he doesn't want a girlfriend. He doesn't want a new <laughs> wife, uh, mm -hmm. I think. But he's, you know, his success is kind of justified. Well, I've made all this money. I take care of the family. Everybody has a great life because yeah. of me. So I have this little thing where I, you know, that I do. It's not really hurting anybody. But the fact mm -hmm. is, it is hurting people. Dominic is not the only man by by any means sort of struggling with sort of these impulses and sort of and struggling and maybe trying to change or not trying to change on the White Lotus season two. I mean, going into this was Mike White, was he just like, hey, we're really going to like examine how men operate in society. We're really just going to dig into sex this season. Like how <laughs> how how clear was he about the message of the entire season? Because we're seeing it, you know, in all these different pockets throughout the show. I think, you know, it's inherent in the writing. It's, it's really, it, the theme is very different than season one, where this really focuses on sexual politics, but um, both in like Albie's character representing kind of the modern male's like take on it post Me mm -hmm. Too. Yes. There's Bert, which represents kind of like the old world that they <laughs> over from brought over from Italy, you know yeah. what I mean? That the, the guy's the king of the castle and all that stuff. And then me, who's kind of caught in between both and sees kind of, you know, understands both sides, you know? Um, but I think sexual politics and sexual dynamics between, you know, men and women and masculine and feminine has been going on. It's an ancient thing, which I think why Sicily makes it kind of the perfect backdrop for it, because you mm -hmm. have such a connection to the ancient world being in Sicily, and I think that yeah, I think that kind of adds to the, to the drama, you know. It does. It absolutely. It, it absolutely it expands and adds to the drama. And I, I, speaking of the drama, and speaking of sort of this sort of like this the sexual politics i loved i mean the scene the godfather scene that and the conversation about the godfather sort of encapsulates exactly uh the dynamic that you just hit on with you know i'll be being you know post me too sort of you know a, a 
Gen Z man, you know, and having you know, be, sort of saying The Godfather <laughs> isn't that great of a film. And then Bert and Dominic being like, are you kidding me? It's an amazing film just because it's, you know, sort of old world and sort of old fashioned doesn't mean that it, you know, is not a good film. I, I love that. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about um, that scene and sort of that debate? Because that seems to be the central debate of, you know, your character stuck in the middle and you've got like Bert on one side and Albie on the other. And, you know, The Godfather, it's a classic, but it also did it socialize men to sort of behave in a certain way? Um, you know, it's it's an interesting argument because a lot I found a lot of art got reexamined post Me Too. Uh, mm-hmm. Both art and the artist. So a lot yes. of uh, artists' behavior getting called out and then people like, uh, you know, you shouldn't show his work anymore. You shouldn't watch his yeah. work and validating the work, which is, you know, I'm not sure if that's, you know, the right way to go. And then totally. re-examining like somebody like Henry Miller or Charles Bukowski, people like that who, you know, mm. a lot of their work is, you know, sexist. That's kind of yeah. the, the their relationships with women in a lot of ways had that um, element, uh, yet they were very good writers. And their writing mm-hmm. style and the, the way they told their stories are very, very compelling. Does it negate the um, worth of that art because the politics are outdated or the mentality is outdated? I don't think so. My totally. grandmother loved The Godfather. Mm. I remember when I was a kid, they had it on TV and they put Godfather 1 and 2 and in chronological order over a week on on NBC, I think, network television. And I watched it with my grandmother. And she loved that movie to death. Mm. I mean, that's that's such a, uh, that's so interesting because, you know, of course people love things that are flawed and problematic. And I think the thing that's amazing about Dominic um, and something that Mike White White really gets about characters that everyone is flawed. So all of these, you know, when we have the conversation about art, and the artist and separating them. There is no perfect unassailable artist or piece of art that doesn't have maybe something that might be flawed. But Cuz we're I, all I do, flawed, right? Cuz we're all we're all inherently flawed and that's the and that's ex- exactly what um Dominic, you know, he's 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 struggling with that, I think. Um in a really uh a really compelling way. I it's funny because when I was watching the, the the Godfather scene, I was like, "Oh, we could be having this conversation. This could be about the Sopranos." I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, thinking about a piece of art that that you know that it's you know amazing and incredible and you know, but also it's sort of about how men you know toxic masculinity. One might say, "Did you like draw a parallel between do you, between that or?" Yeah, I mean, you definitely can see it, um, but. The important thing about The Sopranos or something like The Godfather is like they're trying to honestly portray that world. Like mm. if you were going to go and make The Sopranos and Tony Soprano was some PC guy, <laughs> would, you know, people aren't stupid. They're going to say this yeah. is bullshit. This is you, it's you, not you know, this is like the writer pandering to the current, you know, social situation and um also like just because a work of art is about like an important social issue and kind of presents it doesn't really mean that it's a good work of art. It just means it's yeah. an important social issue. The good work of art is in the execution of it and yes. how well it's made. You know, we kind of confuse these two things now. And, um, uh, and I think that's, 
not so good always. Yeah, no, it doesn't it actually often leads to bad art. <laughs> you know, the, you know, the message might be on point or, right. you know, it might be, you know, and I, I get, and this is a criticism that I feel was lobbed against White Lotus season one, which I, I never understand this criticism. People are like, oh, you know, all these rich people doing terrible things. Like who wants to see that? And it's like, I, I, I love to see that. It's like, I don't want to just watch nice people doing nice things. Where's the, where's the drama in that? Where's the, where's the excitement? It's like, I want to see flawed people, you know, uh, engaging in the world and, and learn something from that. Yes. And I think a lot of people see, even if they're not rich, which probably most people who watch the White Lotus probably are not rich mm-hmm. um, or might be middle, whatever, see themselves in a weird way, just behaviorally, you know. Mm-hmm. in the way people behave with each other, in their feelings of expectations or their feelings of, you know, in, in especially in this season when it's all about relationships. I think there's both a vicarious thing, seeing how these rich people live, but there's also kind of a, a relatable thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, you don't have to be rich to kind of expect certain things out of your marriage. You yeah. Know what I mean, like, this yeah. is what I'm expecting your role to be in this, you know? So I think it, it appeals to a lot of people. In that yeah. Way. I mean, it, it, it transcends, you know, just, uh, you know, one sort of echelon, even though it shows like, you know, how people in that sort of echelon, that sort of hyper 1%, how they act. And it's not that different than how you or I, or like anyone acts, you know, we all struggle with, you know, the same sort of carnal desires. Um, yeah. And we all, get, we all get angry. We all get jealous. We all get, you know, des- full of desire. We all get, you know, arrogant. You know, it's like emotions are universal. And it's just like, it's kind of the stage that it's playing out that specific. Yeah. I mean, that's, oh, that's so, that's so true. I, this is a little odd, but what, how do you feel, Christopher, your Sopranos character, what would he think of Dominic? <laughs> do you think, why, like, would he like him? I like I, I keep I keep thinking it was like sometimes question. I feel like they'd be. I think if they spoke about addiction, he would understand that because he's somebody mm. who went to rehab and was in twelve step and tried really hard to get sober and struggled with it and failed at it and, um, you know he's certainly not as smart as Dominic, um, <laughs> but um, he might relate on that feeling of, you know impulse, you know, behaviors that you want to control that you can't. He might relate on that. Yeah, he'd relate on that. Wow. That is really fantastic. Wow. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. This is so... Thank you. This is really, this has been really a fantastic conversation. Thank you, sir. (laughs) I appreciate it. All right, Chris. It's time for our favorite, most morbid segment of any episode of Still Watching the White Lotus. We got to talk about who we think is dead. Yeah. We know there is at least there are at least two a bodies few, in the water. A few, a few bodies. I think in the several water. is the word used <laughs> in the first episode. Um, so just to refresh, week one, Chris, you said Tanya. Yeah, strong week for Tanya being dead, given the fortune teller. I will yeah, say that. that's true. So maybe we're back to Tanya. <laughs> uh, I said me and Lucia. Mm. Uh, last week you said par- baby Harper and I said Portia and Albie in some sort of rescue gone wrong. Ophelia. <laughs> yeah, were you Ophelia? Right, exactly. Um, but you know, Chris, we're not the only ones with theories. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe to get us started with our own ideas this week of who might be dead, 
Uh, we'll go to some listeners um, who wrote in, again, to stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Uh, Gavin writes um, with a dark theory. The images of bodies washing ashore on Mediterranean beaches has become a terribly, terribly regular sight over the last decade as boats carrying refugees from North Africa sadly capsize. Uh, I rate Mike White too highly to think he's utilizing this iconography unintentionally or without cause. And although the bodies seen in episode one turning out to be refugees fleeing a war may be a little too far-fetched for the show, I do think the way the dead characters are discovered is thematically important. It would suggest to me that they may be working-class characters such as Mia and Lucia, and that White is once again displaying the, the, the disposability uh, with which uh, the wealthy view those of a lower class, which, you know, makes sense to me. That does make sense, specifically tied to me and Lucia. That would be quite dark, quite quite tough. But I don't think that he would go so far as to bring in characters that we didn't necessarily know or have mm-hmm. followed for a few episodes just to paint, a, just to make a salient point about um, the refugee crisis. But I do think that definitely adds a point to me and Lucia maybe yeah. not being long for this world. Um, and then Crystal writes to us uh, and she says, my theory is that the quote perfect couple Cameron, D- Cameron and Daphne is an obvious ruse perpetuated by Daphne because once Ethan became a new billionaire, they started an affair back home. I Ooh. mean, this foursome vacation makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> The plan is to off Cameron and make it look like an accident. This is why the show opens with her telling two total strangers what an amazing and romantic time she was having there. Cameron was the floater. Perfect alibi for the soon-to-be hysterical grieving wife. One more swim before the flight? Yeah, right. (laughs) I love that, Crystal. That is fun. That is fun as hell. That is, And it puts Daphne right back in the driver's seat, which is where we want her. We love it. We love it. And you know what? I could see, uh, you know, Daphne and... Ethan hitting it off. I could definitely see that. That <laughs> that's fun. That's yeah. that's tishy. If Cameron is the one in the water, though, who's the who are the other people or other person? Maybe it's just two people. I don't know. But like that's. I mean, yeah. Maybe I mean, it's maybe Ethan. It's Ethan yeah. Maybe Cameron yeah. and Ethan get into some. Sort maybe of, they hook up. They hook up. They yeah. hook up, and then they get into macho right. like brawl, <laughs> and it you know it just devolves from there, and they tear each other limb from limb. Yeah, could be. Um, I got to say this week, it's boring, but I'm going to go back to my original theory. I mean, I think Gavin's email kind of swayed me toward back toward me and Lucia, partly because, you know, the more that we watch the show, they're the only characters who have touched everyone's lives so far. You know, like, I guess they haven't really done anything with Portia and Tanya, but like they're around. I think Portia's aware of them. Like, like it would make sense that the people floating between all these different groups are the ones who end up ultimately end up suffering at one of their hands or something, right? Yeah, that does that does make a lot of sense. And also, you know, with the drugs now, we now know Molly's, you know, sure, yeah. Molly's in the conversation and crazy things can happen when drugs happen. So She also has Viagra. <laughs> she, does, she does have both. Yeah, that is, yeah. she and does. Cameron's like, well, we don't need that. And it's like, if you had Coke, you might. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <exactly. laughs> that, say that. Um, wow. Where do I, who do I think is in the water this week? You know what? I'm going to go with someone that you said before, mm-hmm. but for a different reason. And I'm going to bring back our, our hunk from the water who we don't know anything about. No, we don't. We don't know literally anything about him. And he's framed in such sort of like a lustful way. He's almost too good to be true. Right. And when people are too good to be true, often something insidious and something bad is bubbling underneath so i'm worried about our girl portia Mm. she's lost she wants some excitement she she wants to let her hair down albie's not good enough for her anymore because he's too nice and i could see her 
getting, you know, roped into a whirlwind love affair with Mr. Love Island himself. And maybe that doesn't go well for her. Maybe she, things get a little too exciting. Yes. And that yeah. is something we have to be careful of. I hope that doesn't happen. That would be Mike White making a very bleak statement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but like you very know, explicit and very he, bleak. He's 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 he can be he can be a bleak guy. I mean, have you, have you seen Beatrice at dinner? I actually have not. Oh well, you, well, you should see it. It's really good. But um, my homework for this week. Some bleakness uh, involved in that <laughs> certainly. So that's it for this week's episode. Um, as always, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com with theories about who's dead or yeah, questions, who, comments, yeah, concerns. What the hunk's name might be, you know, what all that his kind number of stuff. might be. <laughs> yeah, more importantly. If you have it, send it to us. <laughs> um, and if you don't want to email, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Rylas, which is R-I-L-A-W-S. And I'm at Christress, which is C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our editor and producer is Dave Gonzalez, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes and Katie Rich. We had technical assistance from Scott Lee. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week for episode four. Looking forward to seeing you then. Still Watching.